Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Collateral Damage Podcast. I'm Mike Wilson, and as always, my friend and co-host Maureen Cavanaugh is joining me here today. Hi, Maureen. Hey, Mike. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm pretty excited. We've got a... I'm always excited, but uh, today especially we've got a a very special guest that we're going to get to in a little bit, but the topic for today is the economic impact of substance use uh, on families, communities, cities, counties, states, countries, the world... And um, I'm really uh, I'm interested to hear our guest talk about it, but I'd love to share a little bit about why this is an important topic to us. And uh, you know, as a as a mom, as as a parent, I imagine that uh, you know there's there's a toll that it takes on you initially uh, before they even get into treatment, before it's ever a, a tax on the community, or before it's ever um, you know a conversation about where the money should be spent big picture i think the first impact is probably on the family system right you know the 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 stealing the spending the uh you know constantly repairing and picking up the pieces i mean do you want to talk a little bit about that and you know you wonder how far to go back so do i go back to the point where um she started to steal and I, I lost very valuable things or do i go to the point where i started to fall apart and couldn't work anymore i mean i I worked i showed up i sat there but um, my i had a very very good insurance business that i had built up and um i drove it right into the ground because i just wasn't showing up mentally and Mm. i was forgetting things and i was doing things wrong and i was not mailing out you know premiums and things that i needed to do and little by little i i lost you know i lost that ability to make a living so um and now that certainly wasn't her fault, but it it was an economic impact towards me. Then you think about all the money I spent in sober living and treatment and holy Moses. So, I mean, it's it it that's and that's on a small scale. So, um, I mean, there's huge economic impact. What about the the economic impact of her not contributing to society? Right. For all the years that she was using. Sure. Um, I mean, I think back to the stealing, The you know, obviously the stuff I stole, you know, uh, stealing from my grandmother, stealing from my family, stealing from my, my parents, lying to them, manipulating them. You know, the toll it took on them, then it, the toll it took on uh, on the people that they would normally be helping out, like my siblings right. and my other family members and stuff like that. Right. And, you know, that my uh, my addiction was a black hole my substance use issue was a black hole it just it just took and took and took and took and um you know i mean i I think it touched them in every possible way financially um you know and and, yeah it's it's crazy and and then you expand that now it's like well what about the community like you said they're not working they're not contributing they're not paying taxes Fortunately, we had good insurance, but I know people that went through their retirement. I know people, I know somebody that I'm thinking, a person who it's heartbreaking. They went through um, the equity in their house, had to move out of their house, and their son passed away um, about eight months ago. So, I mean, it would be horrible. I mean, all of the things that are missing in my life because of, uh, you know, financially missing in my life because of her addiction if you gave me a choice to get it all back and and have her of course i i mean i would give it away twice right but um they went through all of that and then still lost their son so i mean man that's terrible right 
Yeah, I've had a friend of mine, uh, you know, we run a free support group and we used to do it a little differently years ago and we'd have people come in and they'd tell their story and then we'd, we'd talk and I remember my friend came in and he was telling his story at our, our, our group and he was talking about how much money his father has put into his treatment and, you know, I mean, he got he got up into the hundreds of thousands, It was five, I think it was $500,000, mm-hmm. um, you know, that his, his family was fortunate enough to have that and I doubt they had it set aside, you know, it was the just in case drug addiction hits our family uh or just in case treatment is necessary fund i'm sure they they shut down a business or took a, took from their retirement but you know such an insane amount of money right to 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 have to put into this i mean i there's not a lot of other uh medical conditions there's not, there's not a lot of other scenarios where uh when it hits you need to think about going bankrupt no i don't, you know, I, don't it, it, I, I think you're right and you shouldn't have to <clears throat> Especially if you have insurance. I mean, if you're dealing with this medical condition, like you should be able to go to the doctor and be like, oh, you have a substance use disorder. And it's like, oh, this is the plan and your insurance should cover it to the end because this is what it's going to take to get you well. Not it's the least that they're willing to do just to help you get over the physical dependence, but they're actually going to try to help you get well. And uh, man, the, the... the toll that it takes on families financially is just insane. Houses being right. sold, retirements being drained, college funds college, being expended. Right. You know, that's... <laughs> you hear that all the time, the college fund. Yeah. 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 And that's not what they intended to do with the college fund. And yet you hope, you know, in the best best possible scenarios that the person gets well, and then they no longer have the college fund. So right. then where is that coming from? Mm-hmm. People that are, you know, I, I mean, and those are, that's like a microcosm of, of what's happening economically. Oh, yeah. But when we start expanding that and talking about what is happening to the economy in general because of substance use disorder, mm-hmm. that's, um, I always, you know, I hear from people all the time and um, I talk to people all the time. And when I talk, I inevitably get somebody that says, I don't care about these people. Uh, mm. It's not my family. Yeah. Um, and even if some people, the, the the hardest thing is to hear is when it is the person's family and they've written them off <clears throat> and they don't think we should be spending any money on yeah. them. Okay. So they don't spend their money on them, but they don't seem to understand that the cost of this person being sick oh. is, is going to be an impact them regardless of whether they care about this person or not. So if they don't have even a little bit of empathy, mm-hmm. they, they, I'm sure they, th- then, you know, they may care about their checkbook and their what's in their bank account and what's getting taken out in taxes because it's coming from somewhere. Well, I mean, who looks at it like that? You know, I mean, I get like if we if we talk about it here, we're, and we're going to. I mean, when we speak with right. Andrew in a little bit, our guest for today. Um, you know, I think we're going to explore the the bigger picture impact. Like, how does this take a toll on you, the town you live in? <laughs> you know, this unaddressed issue. If if you're if the money's not being spent on the solution, then it's being spent on the side effects. You know, it's Absolutely. being spent on the consequences of not treating it. And you know, I, I'm sure that when we talk with Andrew, we're going to get into that that big picture thing, but. As just a regular family member or individual, how do you know, how do you wrap your head around that? You know, and 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 or, or or if you're a program, you know, when it's not it's not about your bottom line, right? It's the community that you're in. It's it's the national. What are you going to do to address that part of it? And uh, I'm I'm curious to hear Andrew's take. You know, considering all the different angles that he has and all the different stuff that he hears. Um, right. I, I, yeah. His his viewpoint. I heard him speak at a conference. Is so important because it it. It gives you the it gives you that um, the people that say they don't care mm-hmm. they can't, 
at least gives you access to them because even if they don't think they have anybody in their family that this affects or it doesn't affect them, mm-hmm. it affects the, the economy in general. So we all need to care about this. Well, the the, the, the amount of money, I think that they, they're throwing around a pretty large number um, that, that is almost Im- impossible to uh, wrap my head around. And uh, I think as, as Andrew might break it down for us in a little bit, it, it's it's just astronomical. Right. And yeah. growing every year. Yeah. And getting worse every year. Absolutely. I think uh, I, I'm curious to get to our guest here, Andrew. So Andrew Berkey is the founder of Life of Purpose Treatment Center. Um, he's also the director of public policy for CityLine Behavioral Healthcare Group. He is a board member for Young People in Recovery. Um, he's on the Florida Sober Home Task Force. Man, he does everything, huh? He really does. Yeah. Um, he's uh, he's also a person in, in, in recovery that he, he identifies as such, which is amazing. And, you know, I'm, I'm again, I'm really interested to hear what he has to say. I was um, I was at a conference and I heard Andrew speak for the first time and I was just completely blown away because he mm. just has that out of the box thinking, talking about things that like I, I knew I just didn't know how to correctly explain what what I knew must be happening with all the facts and figures and he's really able to do that. So I'm really happy to have him on today. Well, I'm um, excited. I'd like to w- welcome Andrew Berkey. So, uh, so my understanding is that you've got uh, a lot of different avenues where you're seeing this, uh, this impact. I mean, you're, you're involved in a lot of different platforms out there that give you access to this information, and you're, you're seeing it from all angles, correct? Yeah. So, and, and, you know, one of the things that I've really gotten involved in is public policy. So I'm, you know, I'm the founder of Life of Purpose. I'm the director of public policy for CityLine Behavioral Health, but I'm very involved uh, in you know legislative efforts through Young People in Recovery, my board position in Young People in Recovery, and even at the local level, I'm on the board of the Bridgeway School in Philadelphia, which is Philadelphia's Recovery High School. Okay. And you know when you're looking at sort of the the larger systemic issues surrounding substance use disorder and and really just brain diseases in general, um, because it's very difficult to talk about substance use disorder without co- talking about co-occurring mental health concerns. Of course. The systemic issues are, are so massive that, it, I mean, it's really beyond the scope of what, certainly beyond the scope of what any individual family um, has the capacity to address. But, I mean, it's even beyond the scope of what, um, you know, cities and states have the capacity <laughs> to address at this point. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it, it's 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 hitting us from every angle, is what I see. I mean, it, it's just coming at us from all over the place. The the you know uh, gone gone are the days of just trying to focus all our money on getting them well. Um, you know, we we've had uh, you know recent guests talking about the uh, the impact on the unborn children. You know, everything. Uh, you know, the long term care, the impact on the family. How uh, I, I believe it was uh, for every one person, ten people are touched by this now. You know, um, it's definitely. It's very widespread. No, absolutely. And that's, I mean, that's how we need to start having this conversation. And that's how we need to start thinking about this conversation. And that's really how we need to structure our legislation. Mm-hmm. You know, so when we, when we talk about how we're going to address substance use disorder as a public health crisis, we have a tendency to use extremely siloed thinking and um, talk about, you know, the need for prevention, the need mm-hmm. for harm reduction, and the need for equitable access to treatment, which is, you know, in, in my specific area, um, is probably the biggest problem that we face is, 
is access to care. Um, you know, the United States has the best treatment in the world. People come from all over the world to go to treatment here. So we actually don't have a problem with quality of care as much as a problem with equitable access to high quality care. Mm. And so, you know, we, <laughs> if you ask for help, we have no help for you right? as a society. But if we catch you, we've got services <laughs> immediately. Here's a oh, handcuff. Yeah. We got a car for you. Yeah. You know, nobody's ever had to hit up grandma to help pay for a 20 year prison stint. We're happy to spend 75 K per year per person, a million and a half dollars over a 20 year period of time, punishing someone with a treatable health condition. But like, you know, Maureen has to like hold a bake sale to help them find recovery housing, which right. is, I mean, ridiculous. It's an insane yeah. way to deal with a public health crisis. You know, I think that it's so important what you're saying, because people will sometimes tell me, I don't care about this issue. It doesn't have anything to do with me or my family. Hmm. And I, I don't want to donate to it. I don't want to hear about it. I, I just want it to go away. And I don't want to, I, I, this has nothing to do with me. But when they, when, if you listen to you for 10 minutes, you realize that it has something to do with people, regardless of whether they like it or not, because they're paying for it in some way. I mean, oh, sure. well, and it, and it affects everything. I mean, it, it is one of the most significant problems that we have globally, but especially within the United States, in terms of just the endless drain on resources that, you know, I mean, we're in the 106th year of the drug war since the passage of the Harrison Narcotics Tax Act in 1914, right? So, I mean, like, we literally started the drug war the same year that we started World War One. and spoiler alert, we're still losing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Look at, I mean, the economic impact is staggering, right? So GDP of the United States, the wealthiest country on earth, is about $20 trillion a year, um, you know, give or take a little bit. And the economic impact is now over 1.45 trillion. If you look at some of the recent, I mean, that 1450 billion dollars, it's just so much money. People have a hard time wrapping their heads around it. And that's just alcohol and drugs. That doesn't even factor in, um, you know, tobacco, which is definitely an addiction, despite the fact that we don't like to talk about yeah. it. Right. As and it doesn't factor in mental health concerns. Right. right? So, you know, we, we like to look at these problems and we're like, there's there's 72,000 people per year dying from opioids. But that's the tip of the iceberg. Right. You've got 88,000 people dying from alcohol. You have 480,000 people dying from tobacco related illnesses. You know, when we talk about um, gun violence, for example, right, is really big right now. And, you know, of the 38,000 gun violence deaths, 21,000 of those deaths are self-inflicted gunshot wounds, death by suicide. So that is wow. just a great mental health concern. And really, the vast majority of the rest of them are inability to emotionally regulate. You know, I'm, I'm drunk. I think my wife's cheating on me. I shoot her. Or, I mean, obviously, school shootings are a major mental health concern, mm -hmm. um, you know, whenever that and, and every time that happens, we, we, we're like, you know, we go and we interview everyone we're like, what happened? How did this happen? Right. And it's always like we ignored this communist Chinese rally worth of red flags for <laughs> yeah. five years leading up to, you know, whatever horrific event <laughs> is tearing, you know, society apart. And, and, and you know, and, that, and, and, and those 21,000 
um, self-inflicted gunshot wounds, I mean, that's not even half of the 45,000 suicides that occur per year. We don't really like to talk about the, you know, the smaller ones. We don't even have like CDC doesn't even have good data for tracking. Like, is it, you know, 10,000 or 15,000 people that are dying from eating disorders and, and, and things along those that are, that are mental health concerns as well. And so, you know, when you add all of this up, right, it's not 72,000 people dying from drug overdose, which is really fueled by predominantly opioids right now. I mean, it's, it's 750,000 Americans per year dying from brain diseases. And we, we don't do this with any, with any other uh, public health crisis, right? We would never talk about uh, left lung and right lung disease, right? We just talk about lung disease. We don't talk about, you know, like left ventricle heart disease. We're just like, we're like, this is how many people are dying from heart disease. Both of those are actually significantly impacted by substance use disorders. And so, you know, you start adding all of that up. And, and I mean, the numbers are just staggering. And that's on the death side. I mean, you look at the economic impact side, right? It's, I mean, it, it's, it becomes so difficult, like where you draw the line on it, right? Because like someone overdoses, I mean, we are, our whole foster care system is right. completely being overrun right now with orphans um, because of, you know, substance use disorder related deaths. We have, I mean, the number of fires, there's 40,000 vehicular deaths per year, a large and underreported number of which are us. Um, you know, you, they, they talk about sexual assault on college campuses, Right. The overwhelming majority of those are um, involved, you know, at the very least substance misuse, if not a full blown substance use disorder by both the victim and the perpetrator. Right. So it just I mean, it just starts racking up like unbelievable. And it's, it's bigger than just like, uh, you know, the industrial prison complex is a really easy target. But I mean, mm. you know, it's and it does to Maureen's point, it affects everything. It's I mean, it's such a staggering number. It's like, um, you know. Why aren't we able to cure cancer? Well, because we have a, you know, $1.45 trillion economic impact from substance use disorder. You know, you have a 10% reduction in that. If we were able to roll an extra $145 billion into cancer treatment a year and cancer research per year, like we'd have cancer cured within five years. Mm. Right. So it does so, that to your primary, it affects everyone. Right. right. So if you don't have an ounce of empathy, you can, you can at least feel it in your pocketbook. And that's totally. I mean, if you don't yes. care about us at all, you know, and I should specify, I mean, I'm a person in long-term recovery mm -hmm. uh, and long-term absence-based recovery for over 17 years now. And uh, if you literally don't care about us as human beings at all, it, I mean, it's not just the next right thing to do from a moral standpoint. Addressing the substance use disorder and mental health concern crisis in this country is also the fiscally conservative thing to do. Love it. That's I mean, I wish that message would get out because um, then it removes the excuse of, of people not doing anything. Hmm. Well, and that's the whole point, too. You know, I mean, exactly like what you're talking about, you know, going back to this sort of like, you know, what's the best way to approach this? Should we approach this from a, from a prevention standpoint? Should we you know, put more money into dare? Right. Because, you know, like drugs are really expensive. Um, great, you know, great program right there. Um, but, you know, should we approach it from that? Should we approach it from a criminal justice reform standpoint? Should we approach it from harm reduction with, you know, um, overdose uh, prevention sites and needle exchanges and, and things along those lines? Should we approach it by putting more money into treatment? Should we approach it by putting more money into 
recovery housing? Should we try to close parity gap? And the point, I mean, the point is we need it all, right? right? And at $1.45 trillion per year, getting all of it would still be cheap. Yep. No question. No question. I mean, it's it, it, everything that you're talking about. Those are all the actual um, symptoms of the illness. Like if you think about it countrywide, those are all the symptoms. And uh, all we're doing is we're treating the symptoms one at a time, just banging them out. And it's costing a fortune as to Maureen's well, point. I mean, it's an astronomical. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's more than like we lose our economic impact exceeds the GDP of the overwhelming majority of quote unquote first world developed world, you know, Western European nations. Yeah. Like their whole GDP is less than we lose by just not properly addressing this issue. And it gets worse every year. And it gets worse every year. Absolutely. We're, and, and then we sell it. Like if we slow down how the speed at which it is getting worse, we, you know, we, we're like ready to throw a parade, right? We're like, oh my gosh, we're, you know, we lost 72,000 people last year and like, we're not going to lose a hundred thousand this year. Yay. Like good job, American. It's like, are you joking? I mean, that is not, if we had 70, right? Like exotic birds dying. I mean, we would figure out how to solve the problem. Absolutely. Right. Well, they'd be, they'd be listed as endangered. Thousand Americans is a right. big deal. Yeah. They'd be listed as endangered and we'd Don't be doing something to address it. Right. Absolutely. You, you know, know I, and, then, and this is the whole thing. And this is like, um, and you guys have been doing a pretty good job up, up, up there, you know, in like New England and stuff with raising um, a lot of noise map and, yeah. and things along those lines. But I mean, it's just like the, the scale of the problem. I mean, it should be the front page news every single day, every right. single day. And like I said, I mean, it is, it is preventing, it is really limiting our growth and development as a nation. I mean, it's so much, it's like one year, if you got a, you know, 50% reduction in the economic impact of substance use disorder, I mean, that's everything. It's like one year we could build a space elevator and like the next year we could build, you know, uh, desalinization plants along the entire North coast of Africa and start reclaiming the Sahara to address climate. It's just like, it's such a big number that you you could really really do stuff that that shifts like the global landscape for you know any reduction at all in i, I mean like a one percent reduction in the economic impact of substance use disorder is three times the cost of the expensive side of the cost of like the wall that we've been squabbling <laughs> over for two years yeah no i get you know i actually get I mean, I see the, uh, the the war on drugs that you uh, referred to earlier on in, in the podcast. Here was, you know, this this battle that we've been fighting to, that gives us the illusion that we're making progress. You know, the idea that uh, we're winning somehow, or that we're going to uh, we're going to stop the the drugs that are being put into the country. United States is the number one consumer of substances in the world. When they make drugs in other countries, they're like, boy, America's going to love this stuff. You know what I mean? And, sure. and I, I watched. And the, we do. And we well, do. We do. They're right. They're right. Yeah. They're, we're going to love this stuff. And, and I watched them. You know, the stuff that is making the front page, <laughs> the stuff that is being discussed is that the war is still going and we're winning. You know, we're seizing large amounts at the border and they, the post comes out and it's on the news and we're like, yeah, people are posing around it like we're winning. Like that's something that's actually addressing the issue is if we could stop the supply, that the demand would diminish. And that's just such right. an archaic approach is that if we if we stop it from coming in, people will stop using it, you know, and, well, and, it, and 
I mean, to that to that point, you know, I mean, this is I mean, this is this is something that they've been saying for decades. And I mean, it's not this is not like a progressive view. I mean, our conservative economists like Milton Friedman, mm -hmm. right, or I mean, said decades ago that, you know, demand reduction is seven times as cost effective as supply reduction, Absolutely. which is why when we've been running around burning cocaine fields in Colombia, you know, for, for literally decades, um, you know, it, it hasn't really even impacted the cost of cocaine in this country. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and, and you even have other stuff, too. Like, I mean, we're talking about, you know, stuff, how drugs coming into the country. I mean, one of the largest, most powerful um, drug cartels is, I mean, they're up there with you guys in New England. I know. Right? I mean, American Big Opioid is yep. a drug cartel that has successfully made pharmaceutical grade heroin legal. You know, and that's, and, and the problem is you can't say stuff like that without, um, you know, without it turning into this whole thing. And I mean, there's like, you know, so, I mean, there is a very legitimate use. Uh, for opioids mm -hmm. in, in, you know, even for people in recovery, right? I mean, if I, if I get hit by a truck and shatter my spine, um, they're, they're probably going to need to use some opioids. You, during you would hope, you, you would hope, right? Yeah. I, I, I would hope. <laughs> I right? would prefer, yeah, so, I prefer. And that's the whole problem is because you, you know, we need to get to a point where we can say being pro, being pro recovery, being pro access to treatment, being pro prevention being pro harm reduction does not mean that you're anti something else right i mean they do a very good job of like keeping mm -hmm. us squabbling with each other right and they, really, they prefer like, the chronic pain advocates and the recovery advocates and the gun violence advocates and um you know all of these different advocates should be on the same page like we're, we're on the same side mm -hmm. right it is the the public that's losing not you know these large corporations right Absolutely. Absolutely. Try to keep uh, the attention on on one thing so that we don't really pay attention to what's important. Sure. I, yeah, and, yeah. and, you know, the other thing, I mean, this is like, you know, uh, uh, you know, some of the stuff that like, um, you know, Maureen's doing up there um, with the recovery homes. You know, it, it is really, really frustrating that we are not able to clearly state that recovery is actually pretty cheap right it's relapse that's expensive it's reoccurring yeah. to use the preferred term now that's expensive and and that's the place that we need to get to because we you know we just have these 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 systems that are so ineffective right so like we'll 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 treat someone in an emergency room right, right. but then like we don't do warm handoff we try even when we have good warm handoff programs there's not resources to connect them with downstream. Mm -hmm. um, our whole insurance model for paying for behavioral health care is very problematic, right? It's like, don't leave till the miracle happens. We checked your insurance benefits. It's going to be exactly <laughs> 17 days and 12 yeah. hours from now. That's when the miracle's <laughs> going to happen. Yeah. yeah, good luck. Yeah, it, and that's it. I mean, that's a, that's a real problem. You know, for families, because what you end up having is you end up having, you know, families that are having to cobble together and fill in all these gaps along a true continuum of care. And we know how effective true continuums of care. All you have to do is look at how doctors treat themselves, mm -hmm. right? 
doctors get Absolutely. a five year long continuum of care. They get them, I mean, impaired, per, and it's not even just them, it's everyone, judges, lawyers, pilots, nurses, basically anyone with a trade association behind them mm. has a continuum of care that is five years long. It's very effective. They recover at unbelievably high success rates. Um, you know, I mean, 85, 90% true success rates. And then, you know, when you're talking about impaired, when you're talking about adolescents and emerging adults, we don't have these impaired professional equivalents. And that's why you have people, you know, cobbling together recovery high schools and, you know, collegiate. I mean, that's what we're doing with Life of Purpose. We're we're going to provide treatment and then connect the people to the collegiate recovery programs on the back end of those services because the collegiate recovery programs are free if you hold student status at mm-hmm. almost every single college that has them. And that's how you get a five-year-long impaired professionals program for a non-professional emerging adult. Same thing with recovery high schools with adolescents, Marie. Mm-hmm. I mean, which you're very right. familiar with, if you want to talk yeah. about it. No, I mean, it's, we know it, the thing that amazes me is we know what to do. We're mm-hmm. just not doing it. And in, and the cost of not doing the the everything the easy and the simple and the the straightforward way that we know that works because like you said it works with professionals so the people that we think are important enough to get this care yet we don't have the same level of importance to our children Mm. i don't i don't i don't understand that so um but it you're right you know we 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 can keep doing it this way and doing it over and over again losing people and continuing to spend the ridiculous amount of money that we're spending or we can uh, change the way we're doing things. And if I never, I don't know you for a very long time, but my guess is you have some ideas on how to, how to change things too. Mm. Um, sure. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, so two of the legislative proposals that we've been working on for a while, one is really trying to shift the way the smaller one, um, although it's still big is trying to shift the way that insurance reimbursement works. So one of the things that's, that's really problematic if you look at the treatment industry as a whole. Um, and one of the things that really, you know, enables treatment centers to um, commit fraud and perpetuates all the client brokering and all of the things that have occurred is this fee-for-service model, right? So you get paid the most money as a provider for providing the highest level of care. And, and providers actually have to make a conscious ethical decision to connect people with good um, lower level, subacute level of care resources to produce the best outcomes. And so one of the proposals that, you know, I've been pushing for a while, we, I mean, we actually threw some of the recovery advocacy organizations uh, like Facing Addiction mm-hmm. um, that have a bunch of buddies over at. I mean, we actually got this in the ask to... Um, the president a while ago through Office of National Drug Control Policy uh, is to shift to a values-based care system so that we're paying for wellness instead of paying for sickness. And the way to do the easiest way to do that is you just pay 50% of the reimbursable rate at every single level of care. And then if there's no acute care episodes for 12 months, because the overwhelming majority of reoccurrence of use happens in the first 12 months, then the insurance provider would pay an additional 100% for a total of 150% of the reimbursable rate. Um, and, but if there is, you just push the whole loss onto the treatment center so that it's not, you know, because under the current system, we're, we're really pushing the loss onto families. Right. We're put, you know, because families do not have 
the you know they're they're separated right so even though we think of like the families of people with substance use disorders as a very large group uh, there there's not there's not a tremendous amount of family advocacy going on um, although there are people trying to change that uh, and there's also they, they just they don't have lobbyists right mm -hmm. I mean if you're, if you're like a large insurance payer, yep. you've got lobbyists in D.C. going and talking to senators and then family groups are like it's usually like a couple, you know, pretty rowdy moms <laughs> that are going in there and like trying to get this stuff done. And, and then the other problem and, and this really gets to stigma. I mean, the other problem is because of how stigmatized substance use disorder is, a lot of the times people the parents that are representing families as a whole are, are typically families of loss, Absolutely. right? Because a lot of families whose kid is successful, um, you know, they've got stigma on the, on the one side because their child has a substance use disorder. And then there's also, there's a little bit of stigma on the back end too, because, you know, you feel terrible about it that, um, you know, your kid made it and some other mom who loved their kid just as much as you love your kid didn't make it. Right. So you're kind of like, well, I, I can't get in there and, and talk about that. I mean, I got to, you know, kind of give the mic to the, the family that had to bury their child, which I think is, is a pretty reasonable and, and human, um, you know, way to look at it. But I mean, we need to be talking about, you know, what families had, you know, because that's the only reason I made it, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, the only reason I made it is because I had a super, super gritty mom that was just like, all right, well, you're going to get better or you're going to die trying. Like, these are the <laughs> possible outcomes, uh, you know, and, and I got lucky, right? I mean, over an extended period of time, but, you know, I mean, I had a year, I relapsed, I had nine months, I relapsed, I went to jail. Mm -hmm. She's like, I'll get you out to send you to rehab. I was like, I'm not going back to rehab. I've been to rehab. It doesn't work. And then she was like, well, then I guess you're going to have a good time in jail because I feel like you're less likely to overdose. Yeah. <laughs> and then four months of that standoff, I was like, you know what sounds really good, mom? Rehab. Yeah, she wasn't She wasn't wrong. She wasn't wrong. You did have a, a, a less likely chance of overdose in jail, and it was a safer place, I'm sure. Um, yeah, no. And, and but, you know, I mean, that's 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 what's so difficult about the entire thing, because it's like we don't you know, we we don't have good systems for supporting particularly young people over a very long period of time. I, if, I mean, we don't you, have it. Our parents are sort of like, you know, it's sort of it's like good luck. Figure it out. I mean, I'm you know, we my wife and I are both therapists. And I mean, we have a three-year-old and like when we had the job, like when we had him, they, they weren't like, here's a manual in case he develops substance use disorder page, 15 years from now. Yeah. Page 97. Page 97. Page 97. Yeah, yeah. Check it out. <laughs> you know, you, you brought up a, you brought up a point earlier, you know, and I think we've just been discussing it all along and, and, and it's going to come up repeatedly is that, you know, we could, we could absolutely have the conversation about what is it going to take to get somebody well? Right. I mean, that, that it's a common sense question. If we just sit down and two or three, you know, fairly intelligent people get together with a, a piece of scratch paper or on the back of an envelope and just say, what would it take for somebody who's going through this to get well? We could come up with the answer. Right. The question right. is, how, how do how do insurance how do you get insurance companies to want to pay for this? And you you brought up a point. I, I remember testifying at the uh, Heroin and Oxycontin Commission. Um, and I can't remember the senator that, that put it together up here in Massachusetts. But, you know, I went and I testified and. 
the the day that I was testifying, it was full of insurance company lobbyists, and they were in there testifying about why they reimburse the way that they reimburse, why three to five days, you know, why seven days, and then why why is it so much more cost effective, and why does it make sense for them to then refer into outpatient instead of covering you know the the actual length of stay that's required and. You know, my, my I'm sure my testimony fell on deaf ears because I was complaining about why insurance wouldn't pay. Uh, but my argument was very similar to yours earlier is that I brought up the, you know, the impaired professionals. You know, if I was a if I was a physician and my license was on the line, you would demand that I got a, cer- a certain level of care because, you know, that's what it takes to get me well. However, I'm not. I'm just a normal, you know, 20 something opiate addict. And instead, you're telling me that I should be fine with a subpar level of care, almost as though I'm. I'm, I don't need the same thing. I, I have a similar problem, but because you can't, uh, you don't, you can't lord my license over me, or you think that uh, uh, maybe I deserve less. And I was just so thoroughly confused early in recovery, advocating, you know, screaming at the state house in, in in Boston, trying to create change. But you know, I feel like the insurance companies had their minds made up that they're looking at this as what's what's more cost effective. And I, I love your point earlier that saving money in the long run of We'll pay half, but if you can't provide results, we're probably going to stop doing that. I, I love that. Right. Stuff. Well, or even, or even if you if you look at it over a you know if you look at it as a chronic disease, right, that may require more than one treatment episode to be mm-hmm. successful, which which it, it oftentimes does. And you know, I mean, one of the things you really have to look at when you're talking about the treatment of substance use disorder is is first of all, like, what are we treating? Right. And the reality is we're treating the human brain and saying that, you know, the human brain is more complex than other organs is like saying that, you know, candles and the sun both produce light. Right. It is unbelievably difficult to treat human brains. Um, So, you know, you've got a couple problems that stem from that as a result. Right. So the first one is. We do a terrible job of screening for substance use disorder in this country. Mm. So we don't catch substance use disorder at stage one and stage two the way that we do with cancer. By the time we're even having a conversation about whether someone is willing to accept help, it's at stage four. Right. You're completely unbearable. You're unbearable for the people around you. You just wrapped a tree, you know, car around a tree. You literally died and then we're resurrected with life-saving medications like naloxone. And then it's like, hey, you just died. Maybe now are you willing to accept help? I mean, that's crazy. Well, that's a denial. Everyone's in such denial that it's a problem, that it takes something like that to often shock the family into saying, hey, let's do something about this. Or the person to be like, hey, maybe, maybe because I did just die and had to be resurrected, maybe I have a problem. Because everything up to that is just shrouded in denial and confusion. Like, that's the screening process like how do you clarify that right you know that's how all my that's how all my recovery episodes started you know one started with an overdose in an emergency room and the other two started with handcuffs absolutely right? that's how mine were yeah, yeah. it's all active opioid use disorder yeah uh, right? you know and, i mean that's something we have to do too right we need to parcel out um, you know, frontline law enforcement that we desperately need to be, you know, carrying, um, you know, Narcan or Naloxone. Right. And, you know, we need to um, separate that out from 40 years in prison, like yeah. long term incarceration and frontline first responders are fundamentally different things, mm-hmm. even though they get lumped together. But, you know, back to this insurance reimbursement model, that's 
you know, if you look at paying 50% of the reimbursable rate, and then if you have to restart pushing that loss onto the treatment center, it does a couple things really quick. First of all, it costs, it cuts out entire continuums of care, right? For the cost of entire continuums of care, if you have multiple unsuccessful episodes. So let's say someone has to go to treatment 10 times, right? If you're only paying, um, you know, 0.5 for the first nine failed episodes, and then 1.5, you know, 150% for the final successful episode, then you're paying six treatment episodes instead of 10. So it literally cuts four full treatment episodes off the life cycle of that person going into um, treatment centers and detoxes and and lower level of care stuff. Second of all, it allows the insurance payer to collect interest on the on the float for two thirds of a successful treatment outcome for an entire year because you're deferring payment mm-hmm. for a year and you multiply that times hundreds of thousands of cases that I mean that creates like very significant resources which allows them to lower deductibles and out of pocket maxes for families which increases access to care which allows them to provide better services and even for people that get it relatively quickly I mean if you go to treatment two times it's break even right 50% for the first unsuccessful episode and then 150% for the successful second episode but what it does is it for the treatment center, it creates a monetary incentive um, for them to do a good job. Because if you're not producing at least a 50% success rate, you are now going out of business. I mean, this is the only industry that people would ever get away with doing with having the failure rates that some of these places have, right? I mean, if you guys like were building buildings in downtown Boston and 90% of them collapsed and you're like, <laughs> oh, I guess it didn't want to stay up, like yeah. every group of buildings. <laughs> It would it would be weird if I expected to stay in business after that. That would be a strange expectation for me to have. Yeah, no, it's totally crazy. You can't say that it's you can't classify it as a disease on the front end while you're authorizing insurance and then take no responsibility for the individual or their family on the back end. And that happens all mm-hmm. the time still. I mean, and and it's it's you know, it's not just um you know, like hardline Um, you know, old school guys that are saying that. I mean, I've heard, you know, master's level clinicians say, I guess they weren't ready, right? I mean, which is crazy, right? I mean, you you would get punched in the face if you said that for cancer, Mm -hmm. right? If you were like, hey, buddy, this is the third time your wife's cancer come out of remission. Like, when are you just going to like let her go? You would immediately get punched. I mean, yeah. just like yeah. right away, <laughs> in the face, and hopefully and, fired, and hopefully fired. Totally, totally. <laughs> you know, and so, so, so that's one solution. The, and the other thing, you know, the other even larger proposal that we have is um, that we've proposed is is legislating tax credits, mm-hmm. right? And transferable tax credits. We have them in agriculture. We have them in entertainment. You know, you want to film a movie in Atlanta, you get like. You know, Absolutely. twenty million dollar tax credit. You don't have a business in Atlanta, so you sell it to Coca Cola. Federal yep. tax credits are trading for like ninety four cents on the dollar right now. Yep. Something like that. So what you do is you legislatively structure them to fill in all the gaps, right? And you do it for everything. And so it, it lets you do a couple things. One, it lets you price fix how much treatment is because we have this tremendous variance mm-hmm. in cost of care, right? 
Maybe it's $30,000. Maybe it's $70,000. Maybe it's a $500 deductible. I mean, that's, that's a pretty broad range. Yeah. So it lets you price fix. You, in conjunction with insurance, it then takes pressure off of insurance payers. Because look, I mean, this is the way you deal with a public health crisis, right? The way you deal with a public health crisis is you raise taxes and then you have money to pay uh, for services. Mm -hmm. But we're never going to do that because we hate taxes more than we hate poor people dying in this country, which is an entirely separate podcast and another problem that someone else can deal with. So for substance use disorder, the way you do it is you structure it as tax credits, right? And and then you can cover all of these sort of lower level of care services, right? You mm-hmm. can pay for recovery high schools. You can pay for collegiate recovery. I mean, cities could do it. You know, Boston could do it with the recovery houses. Mm-hmm. If they were, you know, if they issued a, you know, $400 a month um, tax credit to subsidize recovery housing as a city, right, that would immediately create access to recovery housing because it would i don't i mean i have no idea what recovery houses cost up there but let's say it's like 900 dollars a month or something like that dropping from 900 dollars a month down to 500 dollars a month creates a situation where unskilled emerging adults with uh you know minimum wage jobs are now able to pay for their housing and support themselves mm-hmm. um because like i had to be subsidized with my recovery housing of i mean course. i was like Florida. I made five twenty-five an hour plus tips, which were entirely in quarters. Can't survive and on that. Back through the ghetto <laughs> with my car that's full of quarters every night. There's no <laughs> way I could have paid for my recovery house without my parents, you know, subsidizing. I mean, I could contributed one hundred percent of my earnings and still would have fallen short. Absolutely. Yeah. Wow, that's something, huh? I mean, I he is just amazing. Um, he, well, he touched on everything. I, I mean, know. That he was... just. I feel like at the end, I just wanted to keep going. I know. (laughs) I had so much more to talk about. Right. You know, and he's got answers too, Mm -hmm. which is, there's nothing worse than somebody that just has lots of complaints. I mean, I have a lot, I could complain all day, but I don't know how, and I don't know how to fix those particular things. Right. But he's got, I mean, it may not be the whole answer, but he's got at least a start and a place that we can, we can begin to solve these problems. Well, I mean, they all sound like. You know, I keep tapping away at the big picture on this, and I think we're always going to come back to what can the next person do. And you know, I, I hope we get to talk about those with him as well. But you know, the the initial conversation of just just starting the conversation, almost like almost like explore, opening it up just to see what the problem is. You know, yeah, we don't want to complain about it, but we need to clearly identify it, right? right? Like I think we said last time we were talking with Diana, it was, you know, if we can if we can clearly uh, identify a problem, the solution is in the explanation of the problem. You know, Absolutely. as we start to talk about what's broken. And so I think I think he did a great job of helping us do that. And uh, well, he just... answers the when people say it's got nothing to do with me. He mm-hmm. answers that question because it most certainly does. Yeah. Yeah, that's well, true. That's true. I mean, who, who doesn't feel that way? It's, well, it's not my problem. You know what I mean? I don't have that issue. It's not in my family. It's not in my neighborhood. It's it'll not, never happen to me. It'll never happen to me. And even if right. it doesn't, it doesn't impact me. You know, right. the, the whole economic impact is it's hitting everybody's wallet. Everybody's pocketbook is being affected. Right. Uh, and it's not just the people who have to like, you know, de- like we were saying in the beginning, you know, the dealing with the stealing and the theft and the, excuse me, all the money spent on treatment. It's you don't even realize that it's taking right. a toll on your community. You're you know? paying for it eventually. Yeah, you know what? One, one way or another. <laughs> right. We're losing this many people, too. You're going to see the impact, I think, in the economy uh, for years and years to come in just workforce. Mm-hmm. No, you know? I agree. And, yeah. So um, 
I mean, it's it's that always that idea where people think that it 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 doesn't affect them, and if it doesn't affect them, they don't have to do anything about it. And um, that's kind of the reason that I wrote the book that I wrote. Yeah, because I, you know, in the beginning when I was approached first to write the book, mm-hmm. I um, I thought, well, I want to write it so that other people can um, understand what I'm going through that are also going through it so they don't feel alone. I mean, the reason I created Magnolia New Beginnings, it was the same idea was behind the book. Mm -hmm. And then you say the book, the book where this is. Uh, if you love oh, me, I, a mother's journey I, through her daughter's opioid I just, addiction. <laughs> I just happen to have a copy of it. Right? There it is. There it is. There it is. I knew. I knew the book had a name. <laughs> it's, it's if you love me, a mother's journey through her daughter's opioid addiction, mm-hmm. and uh, it's published by Macmillan and Henry Holt. But um, when I first started to write it, that's what I thought. But then, as I began to write it and talk to people about what I was doing. I realized, you know what, I'm really writing this for people that don't think it can happen to them, who think that whatever they're doing is so special and unique that even if a person has a disease and they're born with it or they have trauma in their life and they lean towards uh, an unhealthy way of coping with it or whatever the reason is that somebody starts, that, you know, these people that think that it can't happen in their life, they will see that. I didn't think it could happen in my life, too. I thought I was on top of everything, and it did, you know, and I was not, I'm so ordinary. I'm an ordinary person. I had an ordinary... <laughs> well, like, you're far I'm, from ordinary, but I get what you're saying. Well, I get what you're saying. Yeah, but I mean, I'm just like everybody else, going yeah. to work, taking care of their family, loving their children, going mm-hmm. to, you know, church and, and you know, having Sunday dinner and um, taking them to, I used to run between softball and baseball, and mm-hmm. I mean, but that was... You know, that was my life and it still happened to me. And I know lots of people that love their children deeply mm. and um, and put them before themselves at, at, at every turn and do all the things that good parents are supposed to do. Mm-hmm. And it still happened to them. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, you know, it's one of those things. Well, and you like, put you put the word journey in your in your the title of your book. I mean, it's it is a journey. You don't know where it's going to go. You know, you weren't in charge of it. You were just there for the ride for most of it. Um, And, you know, uh, telling a story and talking about how it can be overcome, how you can get to the other side of it, how, and and not even just getting to the other side of it, but surviving it, you know, both both sides. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, Yeah, because I still feel, you know, it's ongoing. I don't know what's going to happen. I thank God every minute of my, that I'm awake, that my daughter's still with me, Mm -hmm. but, uh, and doing wonderfully, thank God. But (laughs) people read this book and they think to, they think, you know, they're waiting for her to die. And people that haven't read the book and when I um, speak, speak, which I do a lot, mm-hmm. there's um, so always people that don't know, you know, the after story. And they're just, you know, they'll come up and say, I'm so sorry for your loss. And I'm like, mm-hmm. no, she's, she won. Yeah. <laughs> or she's winning. Anyhow, yeah. <laughs> she won. And, and you know, I, I, I feel like she definitely, you know what, regardless of what would ever happen, she won this because yeah. it, she's been, she's now had two almost two years of being this incredible person she always was she got to be that person again mm-hmm. and um you know and i hope it continues forever but i couldn't be more proud of her than if she graduated from harvard and um the story is very very um uh, i i want to say it's powerful because it's happening and it's happening all over to lots and lots of people mm-hmm. and i hope that people that don't understand the same people that say 
this can't, this doesn't affect me. It doesn't, I'm not, I don't have anybody. I wouldn't, matter of fact, if I had somebody that I needed, uh, that needed treatment, I wouldn't pay for it. I'm not doing those things. So it has no impact on me. They need to realize the economic impact and they also need to realize that this can happen to anybody. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Of course it can. I mean, there's no, I think there, there are no, uh, um, uh, there, there's no demographic barrier. It doesn't just bump up against them. Oh, well, we don't go there. You know what I mean? We're not, we're not going to no, get into that. Me. And, you know, your book as, as ordinary and, and every day, as you say, this experience is, it's powerful to hear about how it can tear down a family system, you know, or almost right. tear down a family system. And, right. you know, the insight that you give in there, I mean, just the, just talking about the experience and the journey is just so powerful for a mom. I'm not a mom. I'm a dad. Um, I'm not the father of uh, but I am in recovery myself. So, I mean, I, I I can imagine how difficult it is for my mom. And in your book, yeah. I mean, that's probably the same story. Uh, you know, it is. over. People write to me and they tell me, you told my story, you told yeah, my right. story. Yep. And it's because we're all living a very similar story. I tried very hard, and I think I was successful in telling the story with a lot of humor. Mm-hmm. Because if you, that's, first of all, that's the way I got through it. I mean, my whole family has a little bit of a warped sense of humor. So we were able to... To always, no matter what was going on, find some kind of a uh, some some way to laugh about something, but mm-hmm. um, in, in in a very unfunny situation. But um, so I tried to tell the story with humor because otherwise you would want to, you know, jump off a bridge. After <laughs> <laughs> we don't want that. I, no, I don't no, want to no, be responsible no. for that. Yeah. No. Well, so, I mean, so it's heavy. actually. It's a heavy talk. It's actually a funny story. Yeah. It's, yeah. So it's actually it's told in a, in a very funny way and. I, I mean, I look like a nice, calm, you know, middle-aged or more um, person who um, probably wouldn't hit you with a baseball bat. Yeah. But there's stories but, in there. But, but tell, as they that, start to read the book, story. yeah, they're gonna yes. if they haven't seen you before, they're gonna picture you <laughs> as this wild woman running around with a bat looking for somebody. So, you know, yeah. it's definitely, <laughs> <laughs> and that's what happens to us. Yeah. So now, how can, how, how, how can people get access to this book? Yeah, this book sounds like a great it's, resource for people. So where where is it? Thank you. It's available everywhere. It's available on Amazon, in, okay. in most bookstores. Um, it's also available at the library. And it's um, <clears throat> I, one of the craziest things that happened was on Audible, I was named uh, 2018 runner-up for Memoir of the Year. And wow. Educated, which was a fabulous book, was number one. But my other, my other, uh, the other person that was, it was two other people that were named uh, for the runners-up. And the other one was Michelle Obama. Ooh. So I got to, I know, I got to have my book next to Michelle Obama's book. Right so there. <laughs> I know, I, I'm, you know, of all the things that have happened in the last year and a half, that's the one that blows me away the yeah. most because... I just, I, I mean, seriously. I know, <laughs> right? I kept waiting for it to be gone. Like I well, kept looking a- at it, looking at it, and waiting for them to realize they made a mistake and take it down. But you get to hear this voice, this like yeah. Brooklyn accent, read the book to you. So if you, and that's available at the library too. So I don't want anybody to feel like they can't can't access it. You right. can get it in anywhere you would buy a book online at Amazon or in any or in a library, and they'll order it for you mm-hmm. if you. Um, if you want it. If you just speak up, right? Just tell them you want it. Absolutely. Nice. Well, I mean, I think that's a sign of the times too, just how, how popular this topic is, how relevant this topic is that, you know, it kind of rises up to the top as a, a book that needs to be read, a topic that needs to be discussed. And, 
you know, again, just so grateful for, um, you know, the guest speakers that we've had up till now, um, you know, Diana talking about the, the long-term care and the family focus and, you know, Andrew helping us understand uh, some of the economic impact across the country. Uh, again, you know, like we said in the last podcast, this is, you know, we're, we're bringing people a conversation with guests that they would never be able to hear from, you know, uh, about topics that they may not even know to ask about. And I think that that education, it, it's great. Um, it's good for me. You know, I enjoy this education as well. And I hope our listeners yeah. are enjoying it. And, um, you know, as, as as we said last time, you know, this, this podcast is available across the board, you know, and if you want to find out how to listen or, or watch or listen to uh, previous episodes, it's available at cdpodcast.com. Everything you need to know is on there. And I believe we, we may even have some links um, to your website so that they can get access to your uh, book and information about the book as well. Yes. Um, and this will help them gain access to our Facebook page, our Twitter page, and all the different formats so they can subscribe uh, to our YouTube channel, watch our videos, listen to our podcasts. And on our website, there is a comment form uh, that people can use to submit comments about topics, ideas, uh, ideas, uh, ideas. <laughs> I don't know why that sounded funny Those as I was saying. All, it was, was all that, of those. Yeah. All of those. <laughs> I, I, I felt like as I was saying ideas, there was a little bit more of a, an accent to it than there really was there. But, oh, God. Yeah, so. <laughs> You're right. So they can go to MaureenCavanaugh.net too. Okay. If they wanna, Great. If they want an easy kind of right to the book. I like that one. I just gave them like 100 ways to do it, but direct access so really, is the it's best a, one. <laughs> if, if, if they can't. They can, find it after that they can call me on the phone and i will tell them that again <laughs> she call you directly exactly i love it <laughs> oh god i'll read it to them myself <laughs> yeah so um so i guess uh, looking ahead what we have is uh, our next podcast is going to be the second half of our interview uh with andrew berkey um and i believe that uh the second half we're going to be getting into um some of the things that individuals can do uh maybe even kind of boiling right. it down to much of much more of an action-based conversation and all the different steps that people can take as individuals and maybe even some ideas about what communities can do you know so i'm, I'm yeah. really looking forward yeah. to the second half of this conversation <laughs> me too yeah. me too i love the way his brain works yeah it's amazing all right i'd like to thank all of our listeners for joining us today on this episode of collateral damage uh, as always, if you'd like to find out uh, find out all the different ways that you can listen to our podcast, you can visit our website, which is www.cdpodcast.com. There are many different ways to, to, to listen and subscribe, and we encourage you to choose the one that's most appropriate for you. And as always, I would encourage our listeners to get informed. Stay connected. Thank you for joining us.